I'm Yasi Salek, and I'm the host of Bandsplain, a show where we explain cult bands and iconic artists by going deep into their histories and discographies. We're back with a brand new season at our brand new home, the Ringer Podcast Network, tackling a whole new batch of artists, from grunge gods to power pop pioneers to new metal legends, and many, many more. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hey everybody, welcome. This is Larry Wilmore. You are listening to Black on the Air. I appreciate you choosing this podcast. We have a really, really, really fun conversation today for you with uh, Cheryl Lee Ralph, Emmy Award winner, Cheryl Lee Ralph, um, who's on the show Abbott Elementary. It's so funny, you guys. Such a great show. And uh, we talked the other day and she's, God, she's so amazing. I got the chance to actually act with her a few years ago in this show called Instant Mom. I played her husband. So I've known Shirley for a while and I was so happy when she won. And I got a shout out at the Emmys. I don't know if you guys seen it. Um, Quinta Brunson, who I've known for years, had her in the nightly show. We developed a sitcom together and gave me a shout out. Really, really cool. Um, so happy for all of them. Um, but I'm talking to Cheryl. She gave an amazing <laughs> speech. If you saw it, if she started singing, it was just amazing. And we talk about her career and all that stuff. So I look forward to that. And by the way, it's nice to be back. I haven't done a weigh-in in a while. So it's nice to be doing this for a while. I kind of took the summer off. I just needed a break. There was so much crap going on in the world. So much crap. And I was like, I got to take the summer off. I got to take a little break. But I am back. I thought this would be a good time to... Uh, Check in with you guys, making sure everything's okay out there. You know, some people were very kind saying, Larry, we miss you weighing in. We want to hear from you. I get it. I get it. But sometimes you just got to take a break. So here I am. I'm back giving you my opinion on stuff. Sometimes it's fully formed. Sometimes it's not. But I try to be honest with you guys in terms of how I feel about things and try to weigh in. And what I feel is um, some of the issues we should be kind of looking out for, or if I see things on the horizon, or sometimes I just want to give clarity as to what I think is the, an interesting angle to look at something from, you know, I love, that's one of my favorite things, just getting clarity about an issue, not necessarily convincing somebody of something, 
but just saying, you know what, maybe there's a different way to look at this. So for those of you not that familiar with me, I, that, is my, that is my favorite thing to do. Looking, not necessarily accepting what the orthodoxy argument for anything is, but looking at something from my own point of view and making up my own mind about something. Um, sometimes people think I'm, I'm a both sides person. Larry, why you got to say both sides? And there's not both sides. I'm really not a both sides. I'm really my view type of person. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes, I hear that's the argument out there, but I have my own view on this. You know, I took the time to do maybe some research or maybe I just have an opinion about this. You know, I'm a thinking person. I don't need to agree with consensus. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. But it's not based on me having to belong to a group. So even though I'm a Democrat, been one all my life, you know, I've always considered myself more in the center. I'm probably I used to be more center right. I would say I feel like I'm more center left right now. You know, if you look at where the politics are. But I don't look at that as a real political position so much as what I feel is kind of where the things I care about kind of land on the spectrum. So um, that's kind of where I come at, you know, politically. But I don't have any agenda with any of that, honestly. I'm pretty straightforward about it, you know, and the things that I've talked to you guys about. So I'm just catching up the people that aren't as familiar with some of the things. But you guys better listening. You know where I come from. And, you know, you give me shit about many of the things I say, which is great. By the way, I I love it when you guys give me shit about stuff or challenge me. It's awesome. It gets me thinking sometimes. Go, oh, you know what? Maybe I was full of shit for that. <laughs> Maybe I didn't quite think that through. It's good to have that, you know, and it's great when you guys validate things too. You go, you know what, Larry, I never thought about that that way. Thank you. You know, and sometimes people say that even though they still disagree. They go, Larry, you know, I really appreciate what you said. That's interesting. I still disagree with you. I think this and that. But, you know, what you said was kind of cool too. Love that. Because you know what, you guys, we don't all have to agree on things. We don't have to agree on everything. But I think if we have reasonable disagreements that are rooted in good faith, I find that something to strive for rather than what I would call unreasonable disagreements, disagreeable disagreements that aren't so much rooted in good faith and usually are more agenda driven. Which brings us to the midterms. Yay. <laughs> oh, man, because we are living in such cynical times right now. Man, when you look at the political landscape out there, I really have not been following it closely. I have to tell you, when I say I needed a break, I needed a break. So I'm not up on a lot of the things that are going on out there. So I'm kind of coming at you today. I'll get more up on things as we get closer you know, on the specifics and some of the specific issues. So I'm looking at things more globally right now, kind of macro, looking at the landscape, you know, where we are right now. When I look at Biden, if I think about his presidency, I'm not quite sure what to make of it right now. His his uh, numbers have gone up, which, you know, is good for him. I think he's doing an uh, okay job. My problem with maybe the administration, which is a this is a huge generalization, but I've said to some people, I think I said it to Andy Burroughs last week, it feels like a presidency in search of a president, you know, and most political parties, people like to, <laughs> they like to worship their president, you know, I mean, the Trump, you know, the Trumpies have taken it to the extreme, but, and worship may be too strong a word, you know, but they, 
I think they like to be, especially Democrats, they like to be excited by the president inspired, all that kind of stuff. Biden, you know, he's just kind of invisible, you know, and he's he always seems a bit underwhelming. You know, even when you agree with him, there's just something underwhelming. And I know these are kind of surface things. And I know, you know, the things that the president does ultimately are more important. But sometimes the optics are very important, too, you know, or the delivery method, you know, certainly in the issue with Trump, you know, not only were the policies by people who disagree with them, they disagree with, but he was so, I think, abhorrent as a human being, you know, you couldn't even get to the policies half the time because Trump is just a horrible person, you guys. I mean, he just is. And the thought that he's still in the political landscape and might run again, and by running again, there's actually a possibility he could be elected. God, it's just, it's just terrible. I mean, you think COVID made people depressed, you know, and, you know, by people down. If Trump ever became president, and I am not predicting it, you know, I predicted a couple of years ago, but I don't think it's going to happen this time. But God forbid something like that happen. And I do not understand the Trumpies who forgive everything about Trump and just don't see it and have this. He's just a Christ-like figure to them. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. You know, so what's going to happen in the midterms? Usually in midterms, it's a referendum against the current president. Historically, that's what happens. Usually there's a big wave from the other party because the first two years of a presidency just aren't easy, you know, especially if you're up against something. I mean, Biden had COVID. He's got the economy, inflation, a lot of things going on, you know. Some of his policies, he's yeah, and he was fighting with his own party, you know, didn't want him in there, which is crazy. I've never seen that in the first the first year of a president. He's fighting his own party to get legislation across. So so a lot of internal fighting and all of that. But it seems to settle down. But that's what happens in the first two years of a president. Historically, you know, the uh, during the first midterms, the opposing party usually wins, picks up seats in the House. Sometimes they they flip the House and the Senate. All those kinds of things have happened historically. Will it happen this time? Interesting. I don't know, you guys. Usually I have a good sense of this, but I if, if we had talked about this in April, I would have said, man, the Democrats are in trouble. You know, but there has been a development which has changed my thinking on this. And I wouldn't have thought this in the beginning, but I believe that the Dobbs decision the Supreme Court basically removing the constitutional right to an abortion, removing that, I believe that's going to be a big factor. And normally, I don't know if I would think that for a Supreme Court decision or that type of thing, but this feels a little different to me. Um, the Republicans um, are, it seems like they're running, they've been running on grievance for a long time, you know, Republicans have had this grievance against the left. The left has taken over the culture and they're imposing all these things on us. And you see people like DeSantis and even Abbott, you know, some of the cynical stuff they're doing with immigrants. It's all grievance culture. Well, you said you wanted to do this. So here you go. You know, it's not even based on trying to have real solutions. It's based on grievance. Right. And the whole Trump presidency was a grievance presidency. You know, we're going to sh- we're going to own the libs. Right? <laughs> that's that's the whole that whole movement, you know. And, you know, immigration is like one of their top issues based on grievance, like like it's the Democrats fault that, 
you know, what's happening with immigration. I mean, let's be honest, the immigration issue, especially people coming up from the southern border, that issue has been multiple presidents' issues and problems. You know, people forget Obama deported, you know, more people back across the border than almost any president. Uh, so this has been a problem for a while. Um, so I believe Republicans concern is what I call a false grievance. And I think the Democrats have a real grievance in this election. And that's why I think the Democrats actually have an edge. Now, even though it's what I call a false grievance, and what I mean by false, I believe it's, it's a, a hyped up grievance. There's, I don't believe there's, I mean, there's some issues you might be able to point to, but for the most part, I think the issues the Republicans are emotional about are hyped up grievances, you know, more smoke and mirrors. But the Democrats for this time, I think is a real grievance. I think this Dobbs decision is a real grievance because I think at the heart of the Dobbs decision to me, there is a cynicism in there. It's very cynical to me. And I don't find it. Um, I find so many things wrong with it. But the biggest thing I think wrong with it is it's mere existence. It need not be a decision. <laughs> you know, why do we need that decision right now? You know, to me, I'm one of the few people. Yeah, I'm not a legal scholar, by the way. I never study law. None of that stuff. All this stuff is my own studying of issues and all that kind of stuff. So take it for what it's worth. So I'm not an expert. OK, but I believe in, even though people may argue Roe v. Wade wasn't perfect, I believe it was reasonable. I believe it's one of those rare court decisions that acknowledge the messiness of an issue and came up <laughs> with a reasonable solution that probably didn't please please one side maybe a little bit more than other, but at least acknowledge um, the imperfection of the issue itself. There was an acknowledgement in that road decision. And it relied on a very, to me, a very core principle. When people talk about the, 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 uh, the founding principles and what are some of the core principles, one of the one of the, I was going to say chorus, but one of the, the brightest star, let's say, of the core principles of the American ideal, because as we know, this country was built on ideas, not on tribalism necessarily. Ideas, right? That's what America is. That's American exceptionalism, right? It's the idea of liberty, the liberty of an individual to determine their own course in the world, right? That's the American ideal. Rugged individualism, Right? When you think about it, it's one of the pillars of that. There are other pillars, but liberty, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, right? Liberty, very important. And by the way, conservatives always point to liberty as what they're most concerned about. And they're always snotty towards the left when they seem more interested in equality, you know, which some of it is, is called equity now, but equality or even justice. You know, and the, they always fall on liberty as being the most important, except in abortion, when they just throw liberty in the trash can. They just throw it in the fucking trash can, you guys. And it's really amazing to me. And in, in, in the act of throwing it in the trash can, to me, there is an outright hostility towards women. I find it as a hostility towards women. 
and hostility, a hostility, but it's a real hostility towards women. And the hostility is in regards to the nature in which Roe was decided. And Roe was decided on the issue of privacy. Okay. It took its cue from the Griswold, Connecticut decision, basically some other cues also. Griswold v. Connecticut was a decision um, about birth control. And the whole point of it was it was a privacy issue, right? Some of it goes back to the 14th Amendment, you know, that sort of thing. I know a little bit of this from doing that, <laughs> from doing that special called Amend, which, by the way, is on Netflix. And it's all about the 14th Amendment. But to me, Roe v. Wade decision was based primarily on privacy, right? Um, and I believe it's a proper decision because it acknowledges in its decision. And if you look at Roe, there's a lot of acknowledgement that this issue is not perfect, <laughs> you know, that it's complicated. And so we're going to trust the woman, you know, to, to uh, make this decision in private without the government being involved. Right. Whether she wants to keep the baby or not, that's going to be her deal. She gets to make that decision. I believe that was a wise um, decision by the court to make. And by the way, there were some caveats in there, too. You know, there was a whole um, talk in Roe v. Wade about the trimester and when it's when we can say like it's safer to have this decision and not have the government involved when the government should probably be more involved, like second and third trimesters, you know, and that sort of thing. So it gave kind of a guideline based on the science of the time. And the argument has always been the argument underneath all of this has been the um, uh, distinction to me between life, what we call, when does this, when is something life versus and this is both a modern argument and an ancient argument versus person. Okay. Life, there's a lot of things that we can classify as life, but it's a narrower field that we classify as a person. And a person is life that is granted a certain number of rights. Life doesn't necessarily granted rights, but person we acknowledge is granted rights. So there's a fight now. Even though this is called the right to life movement, I believe what it really is, is to is the right to person movement, you know, and you'll see this in a lot of the language, this move on the right to grant personhood on like a zygote, basically, <laughs> you know, um, from the moment of conception, they want personhood to be granted, even though it's cloaked in when does life start? The real argument is when does personhood start? Now, this is not just a modern argument, even though it's a current argument right now. Um, you know, this argument has been around for a long time and it uh, has covered a lot of different ground. You know, this um, when do you bestow personhood on the fetus? You know, even back in the Romans, you know, a lot of these arguments were over property because you went to make sure someone has property. And so there were, you know, arguments in the law even back then about when does personhood start in the Byzantine Empire, you know, and, and the church in the medieval times. It, it covered the issue of something called insolment. You know, when does the soul enter uh, the fetus? When, meaning when does it 
when is it not just life, but when does it become a person? When does it become a human being from the religious point of view? You know, even with royals, you know, this has been a royal issue, you know, through the centuries. When can you bestow succession rights upon a fetus, you know, which give, uh, regards it as a person as opposed to just a nascent human being, right? So this argument's been around for a while. It's not a new argument. It's uh, the baton of life to person, I think, is new right now, currently. But the argument itself is not new. It's been debated for a long time. But at the end of the day, <laughs> we as a global culture have acknowledged that we believe life begins at birth. Personhood basically begins at birth. And personhood basically ends at death. And I'm using a very broad generalization, which is why on every tombstone and every eulogy, we measure a person's life from birth to death. When they were born, the date, and when they died, first breath to last breath. You never see on a tombstone conceived, <laughs> you know, conceived the conception date to the death date. There are no conception dates to death dates on tombstones that I am aware of. There has been a, a social um, acknowledgement that personhood is measured between breath to breath, right? Absolutely, you can argue biology in this, religion and all these things. I'm not saying those arguments aren't valid and don't aren't valid, especially for a person wanting to support whatever it is. I'm saying, what have we agreed on? for several millennia, you know, for a long time. This has been a social agreement that we regard personhood as breath to breath, right? So with that acknowledgement, why can't we have a reasonable discussion about this? <laughs> you know, like, because if we're being honest about it, this is why the right to life movement in many ways is cynical. And I, and I know that they don't think it is. And I think it's cynical because they are not talking about life. They're talking about personhood. And person is not a biological statement. It's a sociological and even political statement. Okay. But I believe this is one of those issues that we need reasonable agreement on, not ideological agreement, reasonable agreement. And that's where I think, as I said, Roe got it right. You know, so this is why I think many Republicans are realizing, oh, fuck, <laughs> you know, I think we're on the wrong side of history here. I know I say I'm pro-life, but you know what? A lot of people are angry about this. Why are they angry? Because this is a fucking cynical decision. And it goes against the core of what Americans say they care about, and that is liberty, the right of an individual to determine their course in the world, right? That is what you're fucking treading on here. And in this decision, because this issue is messy because we can't necessarily agree in all these things. Roe v. Wade, as I say, gave us a reasonable place to land on. Let's take this amount of time. Let's acknowledge that in this amount of time, let's just leave a woman the fuck alone. Leave her the fuck alone, right? Let her make up her mind here. We get a little further on. We can talk about restrictions and that. But can we just agree that during this time she can be left the fuck alone? And Dobbs says, fuck you, individual women. We feel that we want to make this decision for you. That's how I feel. That's how I feel that it's being made. OK, so that is the dividing line to me in this midterm. It's 
that is a real grievance as far as I'm concerned, you know, and I think it's not even people that are necessarily would call themselves pro-choice activists or that type of thing, you know, I think can feel some of that, some of that, because when you think about it, what are you really fighting for? The people that are for that Dobbs and everything and their arguments, when I listen to them, I mean, do we fight for perfect interpretations of dusty documents? Is that what we should be fighting over? Or do we really want, in a modern world, reasonable agreements acknowledging the actual world that we live in? What do we what 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 seems to be the course that history usually lands on? You know, we can use our founding documents as a guidepost, but we have to use our fucking brains and our hearts as a way forward. Can we just do that? Anyhow, that's the way I see it. I think that's going to be an issue. We'll see who turns out. All right. That's all I got, you guys. All right. Coming up, we got my girl, Cheryl Lee Ralph. This is going to be fun. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, As I promised, we got nothing but treats, you guys. Nothing but treats, you know. When I say it done my heart good (laughs) to see the Emmys the other week and to see this this person win, who I've been not only a big fan, I've been lucky to work with over the years, but my God, you guys, it was so, it was just such one of the best ever moments. And, And... in award shows, you know, and it just speaks to you. I'll talk about this a little bit, but just the love that came to the screen at this, at this woman when she won was, whew, it was phenomenal. You've seen her in Abbott Elementary. She's, you know, all the way from Dream Girls to everything Moesha, It's a Living. We can name so many. Instant Mom. How about that? <laughs> Cheryl Lee Ralph, welcome to Black on the Air, Cheryl. So nice to have you here. Congratulations on your big win the other night. Uh, Larry. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am still on cloud 999. That's awesome. And I'm still feeling the love. And it's 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 just great. It's I'll never forget this time. You know, if it were if it were a big wedding and I was marrying somebody that I really love, this is the best (laughs) honeymoon. I'm loving it. Oh wow. That tell us about that night. So What was your, you know, I saw the video, I think your son or somebody posted when they told you you were nominated, you know, and that alone, by the way, like 
You know, in a movie, how they talk about the inciting incident, what's the hook of the film? Like the hook of this film is that we go, oh, look at that. The You know, the emotions, like everybody was kind of on your side from that video. So the moment you heard you were nominated, you kind of been on this ride, right? Let's go back to that moment. What was that like? Just hearing that you got nominated for this. You know, Larry, I'm not the kind of person that was going to wake up in the morning, turn on the TV and sit there and crossing my fingers and toes that they were going to name my name. I Mm -hmm. wasn't going to do that. I didn't want to set myself up for any kind of disappointment because I I said, let me put it in God's hands. Mm -hmm. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And my life will go on. And I was in Jamaica, my mother's house. And, you know, I lost my mother and she left me the house. And I was Mm. in the process of updating the house. And I was Mm -hmm. in the bathroom at getting things pulled (laughs) out of the bathroom because we were updating the bathroom. You were working. And and I was working. And I heard my son coming up the stairs in a way that, you know, as a mother, you know, you can hear certain things in your Mm -hmm. children when they speak, when they cry. And the way he was moving, I was Mm. like, something's going on. What's happening? But I was disconnected from, you know, the Emmys and all of that, the nomination. I was trying to get this tub out of the bathroom. (laughs) Oh, he was, the the phone rang as Mm -hmm. he's coming up the stairs. And it's my publicist and she's crying. And I'm like, oh my God. And she said, you got nominated. You got nominated. And I'm like, I lost my mind. I lost my mind, Larry. Everything in my mind, I was just, I was, I remember I was just walking around in a circle. I was just like a mm-hmm. real chicken with the head cut off, just <laughs> fluttering around. Oh yeah. my God. Right. It was just amazing. And whoo. And then my phone mm-hmm. started going off and yeah. that was it. And it was like, we were off to a big race and I just felt, I was so thankful to God. I was just, mm-hmm thankful to everybody that voted for me see that i still get still get caught up in my throat talking Mm -hmm. about it oh but it was um it was something amazing yeah there's something about there is that ride it is like a ride you know from the time you get nominated to the awards and you know for you and i certainly felt this way this happened to me uh, 20 years ago when uh you just it's their appreciation because you know this comes from your peers you know right and so that's what's interesting about it. And so it's hard to explain to people what that feels like. There's there's being seen by fans, which is great, you know, and and being acknowledged by critics, which is fantastic. But being seen by your peers, it's a I get emotional talking about it. You know, there's something different about that, right? Something so different about that. And that, you know, it didn't kick in for me, mm-hmm. Larry, until the week before. When mm. I thought about what you just said, who's voting? Yeah. And I said, oh, my God, these are my peers. That's right. Who are voting. This is completely different from any award mm-hmm. before this. Mm-hmm. This means something different. And yeah. it was just it was just wonderful. Yeah. And I was I was so thankful. It was so funny when I thanked everybody that voted for me, the whole room laughed and applauded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was your crowd too. Even when the names were mentioned, I think your name got the biggest response. And and those are very competitive. I mean, we're in the in another golden age of television right now. It's very competitive 
uh, categories, all of them, right? You know, yes. so that's what I mean. The appreciation from the people is like, it's a bit overwhelming, you know. A bit? Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> overwhelming. So what, yeah, what went through your body when you're hearing your name being called? Because now it's an iconic moment, you know, your acceptance speech and everything. Take us through that whole sequence, if you can. Larry, I was sitting there in that room mm-hmm. to be supportive of my cast yeah. and others. I had no, once again, I didn't set myself up in my mind that it was me or that it was mm-hmm. going to be me. For me, the nomination alone was a triumphant winning moment. Mm-hmm. I went into it thinking, I'm already a winner. I'm a nominee. Mm-hmm. If the trophy makes it to my hand, wonderful. If it doesn't, I'm already Emmy-nominated actress Cheryl Lee Ralph, Tony-nominated actress Cheryl Lee Ralph. I've already got that. Mm-hmm. And when I sat there and I heard Amy Poehler say, Shh, I said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, and it's inside of me. Ugh. It's my, my whole insight. I'm starting yeah. to implode yeah. inside. And then I couldn't, I literally could not move. It was like I said, something said, take the moment, mm-hmm. take the moment, Yeah, take the, hear it, hear what she said. Larry, I do not remember mm. getting up the stairs. Yeah. I, I don't remember getting onto the stage. I see it in photographs and I see my acceptance. So I know I did it, but yeah. I do not remember getting up on the stage. Seth Marr was funny. He was like, now you're going to do my show. I was like, oh, my goodness. And I stood there and I Mm -hmm. looked at this audience. And Mm. it's like when you have a dream come Mm -hmm. through. That's right. And and I said, once again, take the moment. See this. Hear it. Because they're now standing on their feet. I'm getting a standing ovation. And I was like, oh, my God. And I just let out the song and I sang, I am an endangered species. And everybody asked me why, because mm-hmm. one, you know, when I wrote my one woman show, sometimes I cry, that was the opening song. Mm-hmm. And it always gets such a visceral reaction from people. And the song was right on the tip of my tongue. And I just sang it. I just wow. let it out. I said, they, they, I want them to know I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. I'm an artist. It's been rough but I know where my voice belongs and I am here with this golden statue in my hand after all of these years. And it feels good. And then I just had to say my thank yous. And Larry, in that moment, something else was happening. Mm -hmm. There's a big sign in front of you and the sign is it's, it's red. It's the big red screen and it's flashing at you. Stop now. Oh, my God. Stop now. Stop now. Not even hurry up. It's saying stop. Stop now. Wow. Larry, my whole career, I could hear faintly those little voices that want to tell you, you're not going to get it. Mm -hmm. It's not for you. They're not casting the black girl. They're not looking for the black girl. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And once again, my spirit said, don't you stop now. (laughs) 
don't you stop yeah. now. And I had to, I just had to thank everybody. And I just had to encourage other people mm-hmm. to carry on, to hold on to your dreams, to believe enough to fight for yourself and your dream. Yeah. Do the work so that your dream can come true. Because some people think that you just go to bed, have the dream, and, oh, it's going to come true. Nope. Mm-mm. Once you have that dream, you got to work to make that you dream do the work. come true. Do the work. Have the dream, then wake up and start working. That's it. What struck me, too, is that you're a very humble performer. And this is what I mean. You've been alongside people in the spotlight many times, you know, um, where even though you're clearly a sun, you're not a moon, you're a sun, you know, but you've just been alongside other sons, you know, but you do that very humbly. You've done it your whole career. And for me to be the son, you know, you were that son, you know, and getting the recognition for it. I really like, because you do that graciously too, you know, yeah, a lot of people don't see that, you know, but I've seen the things you've done over the years where it's like Cheryl's a star, but she's playing this part alongside. This is who they're telling us as the person. But I know who that is right there. <laughs> you know, That to me was gratifying too to see you get when we talk about getting flowers. That's what it means. And to think that. It was how many years since like Jack A won that award? 35. So the historical part of it, not just the personal, but the historical part of it was interesting. Did you know that fact, by the way, when you won? You know, I love when Jack A tells the story because it's always like I was never I was never (laughs) really aware. Maybe I forgot about it, but that uh, that role was something I was supposed to step into after Dreamgirls, you know, and that the studio wanted me to do that role. I, you know, for me, maybe I just let it slip out of my brain, but she's never forgotten it. That's hilarious. You know, and she won for best supporting actress. And when she said, you know, 35 years later, you got what you deserved, which was this, this award. And Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, I love the way that she framed that. So circle. Yeah. A full circle. Let's talk about Abbott a little. So I heard you initially wanted a different role in the show. You played Barbara Howard, the uh, the uh, the diva of teachers, let's just say, you know, <laughs> like this is her territory. She's seen everything, you know, but you I heard you initially wanted a different part. Right? When I got that script, Larry, first uh-huh. of all, you when you get certain scripts, you know, yeah. OK, this is great. Yeah. This this is this is going to be wonderful. This is out. Uh, this is special. I knew it was special. You know, I come from a family of educators. It was wonderful to mm-hmm. to read a script where the teachers were not the butt of the joke. Yeah. You know, the teachers weren't not played to be dumb or stupid or, you know, in the front of the classroom. And they didn't know as much as their students know. It was different. These teachers were the heart of the show. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. But for me, I said, now, wouldn't this be a wonderful departure mm-hmm. if they would let me read for Ava? Because mm-hmm. I could do Ava in a heartbeat now. Right. I said, I could do this. <laughs> yes. And people would see me differently, right. you know, to, sure. to play something so different than what they usually see me as. Mm-hmm. And Quinta was just like, absolutely not. 
Absolutely not. <laughs> that sounds like great to hear. Oh, I'm telling you, absolutely not. She uh-huh. said, we need a queen for Mrs. Barbara Howard, and you are that queen. So she, for her, it was like there was there was no discussion here. And I said, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> and so I backed off of that. But yeah. every now and then, I think, oh, I'd love to see the episode where everything is just flipped upside down. That's and funny. And Barbara is Ava, and Ava is Janine, and Janine is Melissa Shimenti. <laughs> oh, my God. It, to me, that would just be one horrible nightmare of a great episode. Yeah, you guys have such an amazing cast. I think casting won an Emmy, I believe. Yes. You know? and yes, it, they did. That's not an accident. I mean, th- that's part of the magic of doing shows, too, that you can't count on. That it's one of those accidents where you you just the chemistry of people coming together was that apparent right away like at that first table read you guys oh the, ah, ah, you know just like that yeah it was like magic you would have thought that we were a company of people that mm-hmm. had been together for a long time mm-hmm. I mean you know you know what it takes it takes timing yeah it takes the ability to give each other the space. To, right. to land their jokes, to pick up on the jokes. You know, for me, it was, um, you know, a lot of times I talk to a lot of young artists about continuing to hone your craft mm-hmm. because the industry and the styles of acting, the shows, they're, they're changing. You right. know, when I, when I look at the style of acting, from silent pictures Mm -hmm. to the style of acting to talkies to the style of acting for the four camera to the style of acting for the stage to the style of acting for movies. And now for this style of acting for this mockumentary type styling, that was literally something I had to take a moment to in a way learn, you know, and you're learning on the job. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, all right, I'm up to this task because yeah. it's very different. Yeah, it's very uh, what we would call naturalism, you know. Uh, so you almost have to contain, you know, yourself a little bit more. And we're talking to the diva of divas in terms of expression, you guys. Like, uh, <laughs> this is a woman who is used to full expression, not half expression. So... How how tough was that in the beginning? Like, were there notes just like, uh, Cheryl, 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 uh, come in, come in. <laughs> you know, was it that type of thing? And was that part of the learning process and finding that happy medium or? Absolutely. Larry, I will never forget the day that Randall Einhorn, our pilot mm-hmm. director. Well, pal from the office, by the way. There you mm-hmm. go. Yep. And Patrick Schumacher who is one of our executive producers, they came to me. And, you know, there's a way sometimes when your your, de- your director comes up to you, you know, there's a way that they, <laughs> they come up to you. Oh, and I can you, see and you're like, I can know it's coming. Yeah. You know it's coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but sometimes you don't know what, it's, what it is, but you know right. it's coming. Mm-hmm. And Randall says to me, Cheryl, and he inhales and he says, do nothing. Do absolutely nothing. And Patrick is there and Patrick said, and shaking his head, pointing his finger, right? Yeah, in a total agreement. And in my brain, I'm thinking, 
I am an accomplished actress. What do you mean do absolutely nothing? I am here to act. And I remember thinking, girl, you're on the job. You're learning. This is something new. Take that note in. And it has served me so well. Because Mm -hmm. when you talk about naturalism, it's not about, you know, you know, like when you do four camera, you give your expression mm-hmm. and you say your lines and you wait for that camera to catch mm-hmm. you so you can give that expression so you can be seen. Mm-hmm. And this is to just keep the dialogue going, mm-hmm. to keep that natural, that natural flow, that real life thing happening. And I was just like, wow, do nothing and just just be. And that has that has served me well. And any time in the show that I feel like, uh oh, there you go, you're ramping up again. Do nothing. Do absolutely nothing. And that's how I found. That's how I really found mm-hmm. the voice of um, Barbara Howard. Just do nothing. Now I want our young actors out there, who I'm sure we have some people. When when Cheryl says do nothing, keep in mind we're talking about an accomplished actor who she's actually doing a lot. So for her, do nothing is to scale back what she's doing. For you guys, it's different thing because you still want to be full as an actor, but she's talking about the expression that you're giving to the camera, you know, and the what you're choosing to do when that camera is on you and how you're relating. Because to me, what naturalism is, um, being the professor here a little bit, uh, <laughs> what makes naturalism work is the camera's catching behavior, you know, That's and you it. want you want behavior to come across that to come across that lens. So you're catching eyes and you're catching body language and you're catching, you know, space between things like that. You know, it's in right. and it's very subtle, but it's still the intention from the actor still has to be there. That's so, right. Yes, exactly. So it's finding it's finding that sweet spot of intention without theatricality, right? That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And that took me a moment to adjust to mm-hmm. because you're so you you're you're trained to act for the camera. Right. And this one, no, I had to it was it was weird because it was to me it became in my mind, Larry. Like I'm on stage with the realism of acting on stage, Mm -hmm. but it's being caught on camera. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds weird because people would say, well, duh, yeah, that's what you're doing. But no, Mm -hmm. it's exactly what you just said. The nuances of just being. There's a term that I learned in theater uh, that uh, I forgot it came up with. It's not my term, but it's I've. I've kept this term forever. It's called public solitude. And uh, I think I was studying Meisner at the time. And, uh, you know, Sandy Meisner, you know, in Neighborhood Playhouse, all that. I was Uh in the West Coast version of it. You know, and there were always conversations about that. And it's being to be the ability to be in public and to be alone is what you really want, you know. Um, And the actors that do that, you can see what, and it's almost a childlike thing that you go back to of the way you played when you were a kid, where there was nothing else around, you know, and the freedom of that. And when you're free like that, it feels so good. And to get that with a group of people and you know, that's, it's, 
it's honing, you know, yeah. it's buzzing and all that. It feels great, right? It feels so good. But I did not realize in that solitude, in that public solitude of of just being the camera catches everything. Yes, it does. I, it I, does. I was just yes. like, oh, my God. <laughs> After the first couple of episodes, I, I remember that Lisa and Walter and I were like, girl, we got to go to the gym. We got to work out. Oh, my God. oh no, we, we got to cover that up. Oh, we got to move hilarious. this way. They see everything on us. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a trip. But um, the cameras are are literally up there in our lives, in our faces. They are just they are watching everything. And it's I love it. I love it. It's like you have a relationship with your director and now you have a relationship with the cameras and the camera people. Oh, it's it's wonderful. And we all get along, too. All of us get along, too. What do you like best about your character? Or, or maybe a better way to say it is, what do you feel you connect with best about her where it's that sweet spot? It's the fact that in her calmness, in her wisdom, mm-hmm. in, her, in her love and passion for education, she is living her joy. Mm. She is doing what she was meant to do. Mm-hmm. And... She's so good at it. And I Mm -hmm. love that. This is this is a character that, you know, she speaks her truth. She speaks from her her life experience. And she is so right on. I really loved the I think it was the new tech episode where she was completely lost Mm. and knew nothing about how to use the tablet. Yeah, I remember that. And had to lean on. Janine, the newbie, mm-hmm. the young one who, whether she admits it or not, I know she sees a lot of herself in Janine and uh, she had to lean on her to help her figure out how to use this tablet. Come to find out it wasn't her at all. It was the, the software in the tablet that wasn't working. Right. You know, but I love the fact that she was able to say, you know what? I need help. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. I love when people are able to say that. I need help. One of my favorite moments for your character was when you invited her out to dinner in the episode where your daughter was there. It was so moving. It's such a simple thing. Like you wouldn't pick that out, I think, if you're looking at the script. But on screen, it was very powerful to me because we see what you're going through with your daughter, which is very relatable, yes. you know. And then you're kind of resisting the notion that Quinta, you know, <laughs> is that representative. But it's clear the the way that you both kind of need each other. That was, that was such a nice moment. Absolutely. And I loved that moment when I yeah. saw I very rarely watch myself on TV. Mm-hmm. But every now and then I'm, I've got to watch the show. And when I saw that. There was so many things in the show, especially that moment that made me go, oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. And I oh, and it was just so good. And then at the very end, when you see Mr. Johnson Mm -hmm. walking out of the building after everything that happened, I was just like, oh, my God, this this show is just (laughs) grabbing my heart. (laughs) Do you guys uh play what's it like on set do you play a lot or is it pretty like very uh 
uh, scripted in terms of, okay, this is the script we're sticking here. Or does there, is there a lot of play as well? Is there a combo? No, we stick with the, we stick with the script. I would say that 97% of what you see is on the page. Mm -hmm. We really, it's, you know, a lot of times you'll hear actors talk about, you know, writers and that writers don't know the characters or writers don't do this, or I'm playing the character. You don't get that. And, you know, we hear that all the time. And these writers and Quinta, somehow they've locked in very early on the characters, on the show. And it's, uh, it's, it's great. It's really, it's really great. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Let's go back and let's talk about your origin story. When how, when did you first know you wanted to act? Did you grow up in Connecticut? or were you, I know your mom's from Jamaica, right? Yeah, I was very much... Um, how do you say a by country upbringing, yeah. you know, my, yes, I was born in Connecticut, but you know, from the islands, very often what happens is parents will decide where you're going to be born. Oh, okay. You know, you could be born on Island or you could be born in the States. So what are they going to choose? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. You know, you're going to be born in the States, but you will never lose your connection Uh, with your mother's land. So I was always between the U.S. and Jamaica, which was amazing for me as a child, because Mm -hmm. I was always aware that there was nothing I couldn't do. Mm. There was nothing I couldn't do. Could I be president of the United States? Absolutely, because I've already had a prime minister who was black or half black or black ish, you know, so I've I've always seen that, you know, women in politics. Of course, I could be in politics. Tons of women in politics in Jamaica throughout the islands. You want to be a doctor. You want to be a dentist. Of course, you can be a doctor and a dentist because they all look like you. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is that you wanted to do, except being an actress. Because mm. that was unacceptable. You are to be a doctor, be a lawyer. <laughs> and if you can't do that, then you marry one. That's you hilarious. Know? But it's true. Yeah. And my mother would say that to me all the time. When I told her that I was going to be an actress, she thought I had lost my mind. You're going to take your father and my hard earned money oh and God. waste it to be an actress oh with all God. of those fake and phony people. Oh my you, God. You have lost your mind. Go back and rethink that. Oh my God. Wow. It was just, you know, it's truly the, the immigrant story. Yeah. But my dad was an American and my dad, one day he said, you know what? You come into this world with your mother, mm-hmm. but you will leave this world alone. Mm. So you better live your life the way it's going to make you happy. Don't live it for anybody else but you. Wow. And I was like, that empowered me to do me. And I'm so thankful to my dad for that. The lesson. Yeah. Dual kind of empowerment. We were um, 
both at the Sydney Poitier screening uh, last night. I saw Cheryl there. Uh, actually, you weren't able to stay for the movie, but when you see it, part of um, he talks about growing up in this all black world and and talks about the same type of thing. And it was a shock to his system. You know, when what do you mean you treat us like this? But he had no limitations to what he thought he could do because of that, you know. But it was in- interesting is that the limitation came from your mom. <laughs> it came to what you wanted to do. That's what's so <laughs> fascinating, you know. And ha- what a gift to have your father say something like that. Usually you would think it'd be the other way around in many cases. Uh, so good to me, so good for me, encouraged me mm-hmm. to live my life, encouraged me yeah. to be happy, encouraged me to go for my dreams. My That's father great. used to say the worst thing in life is regret. He mm. said, yeah, he said the worst thing in life is regret. He said, don't carry regret with you. Do mm-hmm. you. And so, yeah. And how'd you get that first break? One of the first things you're in, speaking of Sydney Poitier, was in a piece of the action. Uh, yes. The movie. So how does this come about? People are always interested in these origin stories. How does a young Shirley Ralph, whose mom doesn't want her to act, thinks, you know, she's going to turn to some... <laughs> Island trash or something like that. <laughs> How did she get to be in a movie with Sidney Poitier directing? I have to tell you, during in college, my father told me that I could do whatever I wanted with my life after I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. That that was a must. Everybody had to go to college. And I got accepted to the first class of women at Rutgers University. So there I am at Rutgers, knowing that I can do whatever I want with my life Mm -hmm. after college. So I load up all of these courses. And in my sophomore year, there's a thing called independent study. Mm -hmm. And in independent study, you create your course. So I got and I auditioned for they had a great acting company called the Negro Ensemble Company mm-hmm, in New York mm-hmm. down. Yes. Mm-hmm. On St. Mark's Place, downtown New York. I auditioned and I got into the last professional class. Don't ask me how I get in, but I get in. Wow. And I every Tuesday and every Thursday, I am on the bus from New Brunswick going to New York studying in this course of acting. And my teacher is Chris Kaiser. Mm-hmm. In my class now is um, Sarah Dash from um, LaBelle, uh, Trezana Beverly from the original production of For Colored Girls. Yeah. And I, I'll never forget being in class with real professionals, sure. right? And I leave the course. Graduation happens. I go off and I do a tour of duty with the Department of Defense singing. I come back to California and you used to have this thing called a phone service where people would call you and leave messages for auditions, meetings and all of that. And on it, I've got like seven messages from Chris Kaiser saying, please call me back. I call him back and he says, you have got to get on a plane and fly to California. Sidney Poitier is casting a group of young actors for a movie called A Piece of the Action. And I know you've got a shot hmm. at this. And he said, but you've got to be here tomorrow. And I said, but I'm here. And he said, you're where? I said, I'm in California. 
He said, oh, my God. He said, all right, you've got to be here. Now, mind you, I'm not 21. Mm -hmm. And you can hardly do anything when it comes with renting a car and all of that unless you're 21. I'm not 21. And I'm staying with my cousin Mabel. And I convinced my cousin Mabel (laughs) to drive me there. But I'm young. I don't know that cousin Mabel hasn't driven in years. Ooh. Cousin Mabel is what we would now say is bipolar. Mm. And she has not come outside of her home in a very long time. Oh, wow. But I don't know this. I'm this young, exuberant, 19 years old, 19 year old. And I'm like, Mabel, we're going to meet Sidney Poitier. And that is how I got her out of the house. Wow. We took a cab to Hollywood Boulevard, Hollywood and um, uh, what was uh, Hollywood and Highland. There was a rent a car place there. We got a rent a car. And what should have taken us 15 minutes took us an hour. But she got me there to Warner Brothers. And that's how I got to meet and audition for Mr. Sidney Poitier. And that was the start of my life. That was the start of my career. Wow. I love that you remember all the details of this. I mean, that's amazing. How do you forget stuff like that? I'll never forget walking into the room and there was Pamela Poitier and Uh there was Tamu. These were two young actresses on their way. Mm -hmm. And then there was me. And I was like, you know what? Who is not getting this part? <laughs> right, yeah. right. What's wrong Who's with this picture? Right. <laughs> exactly. But I'm in the room with Mr. Poitier. I'm giving it my best. I gave it my best and I got that screen test. And that was that. That was it. I, I got it. That's fantastic. What's the biggest thing you remember from that experience of working with him? Uh, and I know that was a surreal way to kind of be baptized in Hollywood working with Sidney Poitier. Is there anything that pops out to you as a big memory from that? He loved the fact that I had my Island connection. He loved that. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. 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 (laughs) The fact that he literally had to send a ticket for me to come back from Jamaica, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to come and do the screen test. You know, it was the fact that he was very avuncular in his nature. Mm -hmm. He was going to be that good uncle, that great teacher. He told me one day, he said, Cheryl Lee Ralph, (laughs) I expect great things from you. Oh, God. When I left, when I was leaving, you know, the set that last day, He told me, I just wish the industry had more to offer you Mm. because you deserve it. Oh, I, you know, he stayed in touch with me on and off for years, my whole career. You know, he and I spoke from he I was doing I was doing instant mom, Mm -hmm. you know, and he he called me and we talked for the longest. Wow, what a gift. Yeah. And I I received it and it was, uh, it was just, it was really, really wonderful. The way he interacted with me, the way he encouraged me. And, you know, when I saw Sherry and Pamela, Sherry said, I wish he were here to see you now Mm. because talked about you and he would have been so 
proud for this moment. And I was just like, oh my God. Oh, just, I had the gift of knowing and working with and being tutored, mentored by Sidney Poitier. And it meant the world to me. That's amazing. What a way to start off when you starting with someone like that, you know, like it just doesn't get bigger, you know, in terms of all the, you know, the changes he brought to both the industry and the world. To me, Portier was like the Mandela of film, you know? Yes. It's like, it's like we were in chains before that. And he like broke us out of the chains, you know? I said, you know, it's so interesting when you look at his career and you look at those early movies Mm -hmm. when, um, oh gosh, he played the doctor and the person spit on him, you know, and he turned to the camera and there was that nasty, sticky spit dropping off of his face. Mm And then you go to, they call me Mr. Tibbs and the man slaps him. And with the quickness, he slaps that man back. I was like, look at that. Yes, yes. I don't need to begin with, but I'm slapping you with the comeback. Which wasn't in the script. He demanded that that they change it. That's right. That's right. I do. You know, I do a lot of impressions. Some of my impressions, it's just the one line that they call me Mr. Tibbs. <laughs> you know, it's just that. <laughs> That's good. Sydney, you know, he had that long, <laughs> the way that he would pronounce like that. You know, was, That's yeah, right. He was amazing. That uh, special that's coming out is going to be amazing. So let's talk about Dreamgirls a little bit, because this is an iconic show that has been under talked about, I think. You know, recently it's kind of been forgotten a bit, but I mean, you are my old pal, Loretta Devine, Jennifer Holliday. I mean, you talk about being in another huge phenomena, you know, that was a cultural phenomena at the time that you're in the middle of that. Let's talk about Dreamgirls, what the experience was like. I know you went through a lot during it. And uh, what was that experience like for you? I have to say it was incredible to be a part of something from the very beginning. You know, Loretta and I were there from day one. Was it a workshop at first or something? Was it, did you? At first it was just an idea. Tom Ian just had this idea. He, he, there was um, one of those, do you remember those little skinny books that they used to have on those book racks at the airport? And before you get on the plane, people would buy these little skinny books or they were called novelettes or something. Absolutely. And there, he had this novelette about Effie and Dina. And I think they were stewardesses. And there was something about wow. their relationship. You know, they were good friends, but something separated them. And he always had that book with him. And he was going to make this show about these singers in the 50s. Mm. And we were supposed to be these 50s singers. And there was you know, like boogie woogie music and all of that. (laughs) And he was developing the show and it just, it didn't all, it didn't come all the way together. And he was very edgy, very edgy Mm -hmm. because there was one line in one of the songs because he was, believe it or not, Tom Iron was racially aware. Mm -hmm. And there was a line in the song that said, there's a boogie woogie woogie in Miami. There's a boogie woogie woogie up the shore, but the boogie woogie woogie is never happy because the boogie woogie wants more and more. This is all about race Mm -hmm. now. And then there's a woman, a Jewish woman who says, Sadie, 
that Schwarza is trying to be like me and you. Mm. And that was in the workshop for a long time. And then they were like, oh, no, no, no. This has got to stop. And then, you know, other things happen. And then things morphed into Michael Bennett taking it over. Mm. Moved it up to the 60s. Glam girl group, love story. So you're seeing how things can grow in the creation mm-hmm. of something outstanding. I mean, to, to me, that was once again, another great learning mm-hmm. lesson. One of the greatest lessons I learned though, as a young artist, the importance of a lawyer, the importance of unity as a cast, mm-hmm. because we were so young. I mean, I was, when we first started, I was like 22 mm-hmm. and we signed away our rights for a dollar. Oh. So you see this great show happening and you have no real part to it. Your work is in it, but you get nothing back for it. That was very, very sad. And over the years, you know, I thought somebody might say something. I thought something might change, but nothing ever did. And that was that was that for me was the only real let down you know the fact that they didn't want you to be a part of the movie or whatever because it would be a distraction which i did not understand that at all mm-hmm. and i said oh god it would have been so nice to have been able to be a part of it to play dina's mom you know a character that i brought to the show because tom knew that i had such a great relationship with my mother that whole relation that mom i'm going to be a star i'm going to be famous mm-hmm. You know, that was something that I brought to the story, you know, to be able to see that character come alive the way they did in the movie. I said, wow, this would have been an incredible moment. But they said, nope. And I said, what would make them want to deny us these moments like that? I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. But guess what? You keep moving forward. Yeah. What's what's your biggest career lessons for you? Because to have maintain a career in the business, it's, you know, it's more than just, you know, getting roles in that there's self-care involved. You got to, you go through the ups and downs, your periods of doubt, all those things, you're constantly betting on yourself. What are the biggest things for you, Cheryl, to, to, to come this journey? What are some of your takeaways? I am my instrument. Mm-hmm. I, I am what I need to do this. So, you know, people hear me say a lot about being kind to myself, being good to myself, Mm -hmm. watching out for myself so that I can better watch out for others, because very often those others are the people that I work with, Mm -hmm. you know, and I learned that very much when I was doing dream girls that I couldn't just be responsible for myself. Mm -hmm. I had to be able to look out for my castmates, you know, and sometimes when you're when people perceive you as a star, they just want you to shut up and look pretty. Mm. Just shut up and do the lines. You know, don't take on leadership. Stars do not lead. Stars shine. And these are the kind Mm. of things people would tell me Mm. all the time that you, you don't speak on these things. Others people speak for you. Just toe the line. Just, just be good at what you do. And for me, for my own sanity, I had to, you know, 
I don't work out as much as I used to, but I had to work out. I had to take care of my body. The whole idea of partying and late nights, no, it never worked for me because when I would see other actors doing that, it always shows up on their face. Drugs and a whole, and drugs to the excess, it messes with your brain. Mm -hmm. You would see folks that, you know, were getting high on the regular They weren't memorizing their lines the way they needed to, (laughs) or they were showing up late or they were holding up rehearsal. And you, you sometimes that was accepted as star behavior, but I was like, "Uh -uh, I want to go home. Mm -hmm. I want to have dinner with a friend. I want to enjoy my life. So for me, it was always about having a, a healthy situation and, as an actor on set in my life. And that's why, you know, when things get toxic, it's like, Oh no, it's time for me to leave. Cause I can't function well mm-hmm. under in these circumstances, take care of myself so I can take care of my surroundings, keep them sane, keep myself sane mm-hmm. and move forward. Cause that's the only way you are able to stay focused, stay relevant. Mm-hmm. And that's that has been my ethic is to take care of myself and to be balanced, have a balanced life as a human being and as a performer. Yeah. Balance is so important. I agree with that. It's, it's everything. It really is. But people when you're young, you don't think about it so much. You know, I just do everything, you know, but it's like mm, it's you know, when I look at athletes have really changed that a lot. You know, people like LeBron, uh, even Tiger Wood started that where. The in their 20s eating right, you know, and doing that kind of stuff and understanding that you start that at a young age, you know. That's right. Uh, the Because th- these are habits that you're forming more than anything else. Things that will become, they start as habits, but then they become lifestyle, you know. That's right. And that sort of I thing. I see it yeah. in my kids now. Yeah. I, I see my kids doing that, you know, with my son and his walk good movement, you know, where about 200 young people of color come together every Sunday doing yoga Mm -hmm. and expressing their thoughts on, on their own wellness and maintenance in life, which I'm like, Oh God, I love that. (laughs) I know (laughs) we live in that era. You know, it's interesting that you talked about a, a Poitier uh, lamenting the fact that maybe the, the landscape didn't have what it should have for someone of your abilities. But, you know, now what's interesting, Charles, we live in more of a time of black abundance, you know, in terms of creators. I mean, who would have thunk when you started to see a Quinta Brunson create a show and star in it uh, and, and uh, to have roles like for you and Janelle beside her? I mean, you talk about dream girls, right? <laughs> okay. I mean, that's dream girls, right? You better believe it. And I'm so, you know, I was mentored so well. You know, women like Virginia Capers, Mm. who won the Tony for Raisin, Mm -hmm. for Mm. Beverly Todd, you know, Judy, Judy Pace. You know, these were women who of such talent and grace. Uh, Rosalind Cash, Mm. you know. Oh, my God who gave me a place to stay when I came back to California. You know, when I think about these women and what they poured into me to get me to this place Mm -hmm. and what I owe to 
give back to the other young women coming behind me. And when I talk about my daughters, I only have one daughter, Mm -hmm. but I have a lot of other show business daughters. And when I see them doing well, I said, see, that's what a good mother is for. That that is what a good mother is for, because the mothers before me, they taught me well. And I have it to give back to them, to be able to show up and give them my best Ah, in a time of abundance for them. The fact that I get to share Uh. in it. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's like it's the bonus round. Yeah, it's the bonus round. You got it. It's the big bonus. Yes, it yeah. is. Well, Cheryl, I appreciate you being here. It's for those of you listening, we're it's early in the morning here, and she's so generous with her time. I know how busy you are right now, and all that <laughs> stuff. But uh, before we go, what do we have to uh, the show just premiered again, second season? What do we have to look forward to? Have they have the writers share things with you? Are they keeping things from you? What's are you teasing us with things? What's coming up for Barbara this season? Well, I just I just really learned that. Land Barbara is different than Sea oh. Barbara. And and on her vacation, she was so inebriated. <laughs> she lost her designer shoes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> what are you trying to tell me about this woman? Oh. I, th- I feel like we're getting close to life here now. I feel like we're crossing I mean, the line. <laughs> I, I think we're crossing some lines here. We've officially crossed over to Barbara being Cheryl completely there. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to yeah. it. Larry, before yes. we go, I have to say, you know, when I got this role, I thought that I was just going to collect a yeah. check. I thought the character was invisible. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that people would see her and love mm-hmm. her the way they have. And I just have to say, I thank Quinta mm-hmm. so much for writing this role thinking about me for this role, calling me for this role, looking at me and saying, Miss Ralph, they are sleeping on your talent, but I am not. And we're going to make things happen. And I was like, oh, my God. So here I am at this time in abundance in show business where I get to see all of my children doing well, seeing them in the position to green light projects Mm -hmm seeing them not considered as flukes as when we Mm -hmm. had kids, they said, Oh, you know, it's just a fluke. I don't know if it'll happen again. And to see them do it over and over again, have those hits. I'm so thankful to God for this moment. And the fact that you and I, we get to see it Mm because we know what it took to get to this point. That's right. And I am thankful for Cheryl Lee Ralph, you guys. She is a gift to all of us, let alone Abbott Elementary. But Cheryl is a gift. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Best of uh, best wishes for the rest of the run. And you guys are going to be get ready. You're going to be doing Angela for a long time. A long time. And I'm so excited. (laughs) Yes, Yes, I am. It's very exciting. Say hi to everybody for me. And Cheryl Lee Ralph, you guys, Abbott Elementary. On ABC. Is it Wednesday night, Cheryl? Is that it's the Wednesday night? night at nine o'clock. Wednesday it's night appointment TV. Make an appointment to make sure That's you don't right. miss an episode. Don't you miss it, y'all. Don't you miss it. That's right. Okay, thanks, Cheryl. Thanks, Larry. Bye. Bye.